So we're continuing today our, our discussion on having God's personality. And um, if you can tell, or if you, you can't tell, I'll just let you in. I love series. I love carrying a theme over and talking about it for weeks on end just because um, I, don't, I, I don't know if it has to do with growing up Baptist and I, we didn't do a lot of series except for a discipleship training on Sunday nights. How many of you remember discipleship training? Um, we like, through the book of Romans, verse by verse. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so uh, as a 12-year-old, that wasn't fun. Uh, but uh, I enjoy series because I, I, it gives me a chance as the teacher to take my time and really explore things and come back to things if I need to and, and those, those kinds of things. Let me come back to something about last week on uh, holiness. Um, that we came up afterwards that I, I want to make a point. Um, we are, I, my experience, and I know a lot of you, your experiences are the same way because we've talked about it, but uh, there's a common theme kind of throughout my teachings and my ministry of late um, that is trying to balance a lot of things that I feel like we're out of balance in our the teachings and learnings from where we came from. And uh, when I teach about these things, when I talk about these concepts, it can sound like I'm trying to do away with the old way we were taught and just focus on a new way. And that's not usually the case. That may, it may come across that way, and I apologize for not being a better communicator in that aspect. But generally what I'm trying to do almost all the time is I'm just trying to balance because we've heard about how to do things one way or think about things one way. And now we understand that there's a, another way to think about them. And it doesn't mean we do away altogether with the old way. It just means that now we have to talk more about the new way in order to balance it. Does that, that make sense? Uh, we, we get questions every once in a while like, do you ever teach from the New Testament? And the answer is kind of no. Um, because, and, and that's on purpose. And the reason why that is, not that I don't agree with the New Testament, I don't believe in it, it's not that at all. It's that for mo- the majority of us, that's all we know. That's all we grew up with. And so teaching the Tanakh, I trust, which I'm sure happens, that as we talk through things in the Tanakh, there are New Testament verses that are going off in your head. There are the words of Yeshua that you're remembering. I shouldn't have to quote those things because we all grew up in that. That's what we know. That's the fiber of who we are. So again, I'm not trying to negate or do away with the Brit Hadashah, the, the apostolic scriptures, at all. I just, I'm coming from a place of understanding that that's our world. That's where we live. And what I'm trying to do is establish many of those concepts, all of those concepts in the Tanakh, and trusting that you know it well enough that you'll make the connections. And I think most of the time that's true. So last week in our teaching on holiness, um, we, we, one of the things that I'm trying to balance, let me say it like this, one of the things I'm trying to balance is uh, faith and works and that faith versus works debate, which really and truly is not a debate. In the scripture, it's not a debate. Yeah, but Paul said works, it's not a faith versus works debate like we think it is and like what, what has been made to be a thing over the last couple of decades, a few decades. There is no faith versus works debate in scripture as far as I'm concerned. And so, but that's the world that we come from, right? This weird mix between you can't earn your salvation and 
you can't, you know, you can't hardly do anything ever righteous, even with Yeshua and the Ruach HaKodesh and all that stuff, but you're still supposed to be a good person. Like, we, it's this weird in-between place where the church doesn't really know how to talk about righteous acts and doing good things. And oh, even if you do do good things, be careful not to be too proud of yourself because that's pride and that's a sin. Like, ah, it's always this, it's like I say all the time, it's like being on a horse and being, or being a horse and being spurred and reined at the same time. Do, do, I, do, I, do I do righteous acts or do I not because I don't want to be prideful? Do, do I think I'm doing a good job or can I not do that? Is it not good to go like, okay, you did good. Is that a sin? Like, it's all this in-between place. It creates a lot of anxiety for believers. And so this, this holiness discussion last week, um, I, I want to make sure that, it, that I clarify that I don't want it to make it sound like we produce our own holiness as far as um, we don't need God and, and, and if, if we're going to be holy, we have to make ourselves holy. That's not the point that I was trying to make. Kyle brought up uh, after and the discussion after, and it was a good point, um, that God declares us as holy. He says, you are holy, you are to be holy as I am holy. Now, what is a declaration? What good is that? Well, when it's from the creator of the universe, it means everything. It means that he is, he is categorizing us, he is identifying us, since we're all worried about our identity and who we are and what to call ourselves. He's giving us an identity. You are this, you are holy. Now, that's his part. And he aids us in that journey by teaching us what that looks like, giving us the Torah. I'm not just going to call you holy and go, okay, now go figure it out and be mad at you when you mess up because you don't know what you're doing, right? You, ever, you, can't, you can't tell your kids to go do something and not explain what you want done or how you want it done and then get mad when they don't do it like was in your head. It's like I was talking about uh, Family Roundtable. You guys online didn't hear this, but I kind of castigated everybody and myself all at the same time that I get frustrated with our local group here because they can't read my mind. And it frustrates me because, you know, there's things that need to be done around the property and upkeep and all that kind of stuff. And I have all of this stuff in my head. I have a picture of what everything should look like and how it should run, and nobody does anything about it because they can't read my mind. It was funny, but it's my complex, not anybody's. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm, 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 it's my own complex. But sometimes I think we expect God to be just like that. Be holy. Now go figure it out. No. God declares us as holy. He calls us holy. And then he gives us his instructions, his Torah to show us how to do that, how to be set apart for it with a purpose and what purpose that is. And then we have Ruach HaKodesh. We have the, the, the very personality of God that lives in us that helps to produce that life. We have Yeshua, our mentor and our model and our, 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 the one that we look to to, to see what, what a holy human being is. We have all the patriarch. We have all the help we could ever need in order to to, to produce that holiness personality within us. And so I don't want to make it sound at all like we're just out here trying to do our own thing and do it on our own. That's not it at all. But in the, in the culture and the teaching that we come from, many of us, all we ever heard was God declared you holy. So you are. Okay? And that requires no effort. It requires no accountability. It requires no... no 
nothing on our part. We just are. And yet in our own minds, we know ourselves well enough to know that there's things that we do that are not holy. There are things that we think, things that we say that are not holy. But God said you are, but I'm not. And so again, that's another in-between place where we find ourselves. And, and the solution to that, in my opinion, is what we talked about last week, is that God declares it and God gives us all the aid and the tools necessary to become what he has in his mind of us to become as partners and image bearers. And so, but then we have to partner with that. We have to partner with that and actually do the things that he gave us to do in order that we could fulfill the mission and the identity that he called us to fulfill. Another parental example. You've all, as parents, told your children they were the smartest, they were the most beautiful, they were the brightest. You never told your kids that? No? You were just real and honest. Look, let's be honest. You're not that bright, you're not that good looking. You better be a really hard worker. No, that's <laughs> Miss Robin's listening in the nursery. That's your husband. <laughs> that's, that's pretty pretty accurate. Okay, let's just be honest. Now, are we lying to our children when we say those things? Be honest. Are we lying? We're not. Li- I'm not lying when I tell my kids, "You're the most beautiful." You know, you're the most beautiful children I've ever seen. And, and I believe you are capable of anything you put your mind. You can literally be anything you want to be. You are the most talented. I believe, we believe that. Do they always get it? How many young people struggle with, with you know, self-esteem issues, self-image issues? No matter how much we tell our young daughters, you're the most beautiful girl in the world, any guy would be stupid stupid to look the other way you know it, no matter how many times we tell our young daughters that how many young girls across this country are suffering with self-image issues how many grown women are suffering with self-image issues that they got when they were younger and just never were able to heal from so we we as parents can declare something all we want but ultimately it comes down to our kids our friends our family internalizing that declaration and believing the things that we that they are said about them and and bringing those things to fruition right as much as i want my kids to be successful and many of you have already passed this stage so i i don't know what i'm talking about i would listen to you at at any point during this but as much as i want my kids to be successful i can't make that happen and as much as I speak life over them and declare prosperity and blessing and the will of God over them and pray and all the things that we do as parents, ultimately, it starts and ends with them. And as Hashem is our Father, as God is our Father, this is the way that I see holiness, that He says, you are. What does holiness mean? to? And this, this whole teaching is not on holiness, but just, I feel the anointing. No, I'm joking. I don't mean to... Re- no, th- I really feel like this needs to be said. Uh, the, what is, when God looks at his children, looks at humanity, looks at Israel particularly, and says, you are holy because I am holy. As a parent, as a mom, as a dad, we tend to joke about, we were joking about it this morning, 
we tend to joke about the bad traits or the, the challenging traits that our children get. Like, oh, that's your son. That's your daughter. Right, you know. Like there's not a lot of hard-headedness and rebellion and stubbornness in both sides of every family, right? Who are we kidding? But do we focus on the really good things as much when our kids are responsible, when they are sensitive, when they are gracious to people around them, when they are hardworking, when they're, you know, when, when, they, when they emulate all these good qualities, do we go, they're like that because I'm like that? Does that make sense? Can we identify in our children the good things that are there because we put them in there? When God says, be holy because I am holy, what is that? What does God feel like? Talking about God's personality. You know God has feelings. Newsflash, right? What does God feel like when he looks down on his children? He knows. He knows. Just like we look at our children and knows that they're going to get bumped around by life. They're going to make some crazy decisions. They're going to be around some people that are not good for them. They're going to wander and get off the track and have to come back on. We know that as parents. We know that because we've all been there. When God looks at his people, Israel, and says, be holy because I am holy, or you are holy because I am holy, what does that make God feel like? Something to explore as a parent. As you think about your interactions with your children and, and how you try to direct them and, and guide them and, and, and encourage them along the way that, that, that is hopefully best for them. So this holiness discussion is not, is not, it's not God said it so I am it. And it's not, well, if I'm going to be holy, I got to do it myself. It's not either one of those two things exclusively, right? It is, again, we come back to this partnership word. It is our partnering with God. And our letting, letting the idea of holiness take root in us and, and let it be who we are, not just something that we, that we do. So church bells are ringing. We don't even have church bells. That's awesome. All right. So thank you for letting me clarify that. You might not need that clarification. I just felt like I needed to say it. Um, so today I want to move on to another part of God's uh, personality we kind of touched on last week, but kind of not. And I actually named this um, this part love, and I probably shouldn't have. That's kind of miss, missing the, the, the idea that I want to get into. More loving kindness. I want to talk about God's personality trait of loving kindness. Because we talked about last week that holiness and love are almost inseparable. They're two sides of the same coin. That God calls us to be holy because he loves us. And because God's holiness, God's way of doing things separate for a purpose than the rest of the world is his ultimate sign of love. Whenever we tell our kids, you're going to do things my way because you live under my roof, that's really an act of love. That's also a statement of holiness. We're going to do things separately and differently than everybody else. And there's a reason behind it. Why do you as parents do things differently with your kids than other parents do with their kids? There's a good chance because that's the way it was done for you and it worked. Right? Your parents taught you uh, work ethic, taught you habits, taught you uh, values that worked for you. And so you pass those on to your children. Love and holiness are inseparable. 
And I think so many times, mostly, because of, uh, of how we've seen it modeled in some factions of the church, we don't see love and holiness together. When I think about holiness in some of the circles that I've been in, when I think about holiness, some of you can help me out because you know where I'm going. When you think about holiness and the way it's displayed in the church or some churches, what are some words that come to mind? Disappointing, okay. What else? Facade, right? What else? Deceitful, what else? Fake. What about judgmental, right? These are all good words. Judgmental is the one that just really comes to me when people talk about, when, you know, when certain church members talk about holiness, what they really mean is that you're not where I am, and so I'm going to judge you about it. I'm going to, you know, whatever. So there, there's, there's this, we don't think about holiness and love a lot of times together, but they are. Holiness is because of love, and love is because of, of, of holiness. It's a reciprocal, it's cyclical. So I don't want to focus on love a whole lot uh, today, except to say, uh, I'm going to go over and grab this real quick, um, except to say that To, to quote an old, I don't even know where this comes from, but an old saying, love is a verb. Is that a Christian statement from like 20 years ago? It feels like it is, 30 years ago. Huh? Yeah. Like a DC Talk or something like that or Toby Mac. Or it has to, yeah, it sounds like it. Um, sounds like a contemporary Christian song, whatever. But, but love is a verb. And we probably need to talk about this more because, again, this is one of these things that we have this dichotomy in our heads because we have this idea of emotion, and the biblical understanding of love is action. You know, one of the, the, the gorgeous and, and life-defining things, when we come into the Torah and a biblical, Hebraic, Jewish understanding of God and God's Word, is when we, when we start to learn the Hebrew language and learn about the Hebrew language, even if you can't say the alphabet or even if you don't know any words or can't read it, but when you learn about the Hebrew language is that you learn that first and foremost, Hebrew is an action-oriented language. Hebrew is action-oriented. So in English, we have Joe went as a sentence structure, right? Where the, the, the noun or pronoun is first, the subject is first, the verb comes after in diagram and sentence structure. Well, in Hebrew, it's reversed where the verb comes first. The action comes first, and then it tells you about who's doing it or what's doing it. And the, this, just this one little fact should be really teaching to us and really challenging to us because we didn't grow up Jewish or Hebrew. We're not Israel in the, you know, in, in three, four, five thousand years ago. We don't understand these differences of concepts. We're very Greek and Roman in the way that we think about uh, and the way we, we, our philosophy on life. And so we tend to be more noun and more uh, mentally focused, more idea focused, I guess is a way to say it, where Hebrew, what's that? Abstract, yeah, abstract focused. I said that. Um, abstract, I said idea, it's the same thing. Um, Got to be all smart. Um, we're more abstract and idea focused where the Hebrew and Hebraic understanding is more action focused. Secondly, cousin to that, is that Hebrew is very concrete, right? Yeah, Hebrew is very tactile, I always say. It's very, you can touch it. When, when there's a, 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 an idea trying to be conveyed in Hebrew, there's a good chance it's using language that you can go touch. 
So just one, I'll use, I'll use the word love as a intro, a second intro or third intro to this teaching to, to talk about this. So, so somebody define for me our modern day understanding of love. What is love? What's that? I'm sorry. Sex, okay, okay. I thought that's what you said. I just want to make sure. Pheromone, pheromones. What's going on right here? Holy cow! No. <laughs> Travis, back, back up. No, I'm just. No. <laughs> yeah, but no, I'm not sorry. I love it. No, okay. So, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's great. Emotion. It, it, right, chemistry, right, right. Emotion, feeling, all these kinds of things. They're very, uh, <laughs> hey, they're going to learn about it somewhere. It might as well be here. It's my, that's my attitude. Yeah. But you, you hear how all these, does anybody have anything different that you'd like to, to add about love when we talk about what love is? Huh? They, they got it? Huh? Oh, flip, yeah, that's good, yeah. It's another word we use. Yeah. Did you say something? Okay. Unconditional. That's right. We'll move into that part in just a second. Yep. Um, because that's a challenging one when we start talking about the real definition of love. But you hear how all these words are, to use Kyle's word, abstract in a sense. Feeling, emotion, you know, you have puppy love. You have all these kinds of things. The flippancy and the, the, the tempor- temporariness of, um, of love that that we say all the time, like, oh, I love God, or we tell our, our spouse, I love you, and you're going like, I'd really, I'd really love some Chinese food. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, we miss- that, yeah, we misuse it, for sure, and it's used way too much. But it's hard to pin down a definition of love in our modern society, and it's getting even harder by the day as love gets redefined outside of the bounds of what we as our generation knows and the generations before us knew it. Language is changing before our very eyes. Do you realize that? You wonder like, well, well, how is it that, that so many decades ago a fag was a cigarette and now all of a sudden it's something totally different? And, and gay was fun and happy and now you can't even use that word because it means a certain... You realize language is changing before our very eyes? I just want you to realize that. Cultural language is changing before our very eyes. It was happening all the time, but we just need to start realizing. So the, 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 the Hebrew uh, for love, does anybody not, Kyle, know what the Hebrew for love is? What's that? The changing? No, it's not. I'm not saying it's good. No, I'm just saying it is. It is what it is. I'm not saying good or bad one way or the other. I have my opinions. I'm sure we all do. But it is changing, and it changes in every generation. So it's even more important as language changes that we come back to the foundational dictionary of the meaning of words, and that is the Scripture. The Scripture is not only just a, a book of stories and a book of wisdom and all that. It also can be a great dictionary that tethers us to a reality, right? The Bible defines a reality, and it uses language that holds us to that reality. So, what's that? Miss Robin's not allowed to speak yet. She's going to get in front of me. Right. Right. That's right. We can trust the scriptural 
the wisdom and the scriptural understandings for what they are. And, and we need to be careful. And I, I know I, I get accused of this. Some of you may feel uneasy sometimes when I talk about stuff like, uh, I don't think that's what that means. Or I have a hard time believing that's what that means. We're not trying to change things. We're trying to actually get back to the truest sense of what it was. And that can feel like, well, you're changing the way I understand the Bible. Yeah, because maybe we understand it, understood it through a 20th, 21st century lens, and we're trying to go back to a 2nd century lens or a, or a 5th century BCE lens, whatever. So this is the Hebrew word for love, right? Everybody got it? <laughs> this is the base. This is the base. The Hebrew word for love is ahava, right? Ahava is love. This is the base, which is Ahav, okay, three-letter three root, Ahav. And when we talk about what is, what is love, I'm so tempted to sing the song, please. I'm really holding back. Um, <laughs> no, I, got, ugh, I can't. I'm going to move on. When we talk about a d- defining biblical love, we come back to this three-letter root, Ahav, Ahav means basically to give. So you say, well, what is biblical love? It's giving. Yeah, but that doesn't feel all mushy. I know. But in all of your mushy, mushiness and all of your pheromones and all of your, all of your other things that are... Travis is really uncomfortable right now, Robin. All of the... Uh, all of the, the um, abstract, ethereal ways we try to define love that feel good to us, where does that get us? Using a working, yeah, it does. 60% divorce rate, children abandoned, abortion, right? All all because they loved someone. And then when you don't feel anymore, it stops because how many have been married long enough to know that the feeling... comes and goes it's good shut up you're trying to redeem yourself (laughs) (laughs) but the feeling the feelings can come and go right they can't do you always feel butterflies you've been married for you know i would say 20 years but you've been married for six months you still feel the butterflies probably times you don't the but see when we define love as that and we try to operate in that definition then it causes trouble it creates, it creates hard places because the working definition creates an expectation for us. If love is this feeling and I love somebody, I'm supposed to have this feeling. That's the expectation because we've learned that love is a feeling. So if you love something, you have to feel a certain way about it. Well, what happens when you don't feel that way anymore because emotions are fickle? What happens when you don't feel? Obviously, you don't love anymore because that's the definition we were given. And that's the expectation that we have, right? Pretty simple. And, and you're always grabbing at this stuff. It's funny, emotional love, as we describe it, can feel like euphoria, right? That's a good word, right? <laughs> euphoria, or it can feel like your insides are being ripped out of your body, Right? We've all experienced both ends of that spectrum, right? You first meet somebody, you, you know, you have that like, <gasps> and then 
if it comes where it doesn't work out and you break up, then you feel like you're just, your insides are literally being ripped out of your body. That's love too, somehow. I don't, it's so weird. See how the world, the world is so messed up on this love thing because we have an expectation created by a definition that doesn't work. The, the biblical definition, ahav, my arrow's backwards, just means to give in its base form. I'm sure Kyle could, you know, illustrate this more. But this idea just is, is being a person of giving. Where do we see this? There's a verse in Scripture that we all know, we all grew up with. You have it memorized. You'll never forget it as long as you live from the Gospels that illustrates this verse per- perfectly or this idea perfectly. What is it? Thank you. Right? John 3.16. See, this is the definition of love. This is Ahav. God so loved the world that he sat back in his throne and he was filled with emotion. God is emotional. He does have emotion. But that's not, that's not the, the, the personification that it gives. God so loved the world that he gave not as a result of his love, but because that's what love is. Love doesn't produce a giving attitude. Okay? I'm not splitting hairs. This is real, real fundamental. When we say love produces a giving attitude or something like that, what is love then? Love is still that feeling. It's still that motivation, that ethereal, abstract motivation that produces a giving spirit, and love and giving are still separate. Does that make sense? Or am I confusing everybody? I, I've heard it my whole life. Well, love, you know, if you love, you should be giving. Well, so that means, and, and I, I, have, I have struggled with this, y'all, I, this, this lesson and this teaching, and this may fall over in the next week, but this love and this teaching has been so instructive for me because I am by nature a very emotional person. It's just who I am. Be quiet. Um, that's right. I just did the man thing and told my wife to be quiet. And she didn't listen. She's still giggling. Uh, for those of you online that can't, can't hear or see her. Um, we need to put another camera over here that just shows her. That way you, you guys get the full experience. I'm a very emotional person by nature. I know many of you are because we've talked about it. And I've always heard leaders attract people like themselves. And I thought, that's silly. How do, that's not a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. But being an emotional person, we, are, we naturally filter everything through that lens. And we don't even realize it's a lens. It's just who we are, right? I love, I love using myself and Heather as an example because she, she is more mentally focused where, where when she gets something in her mind and she's convinced of something, a team of horses couldn't pull her away from it because it's locked in her mind like a trap. And it will be there. Yeah, it's, it's your fault. And it will be there forever. And it's going to take a whole heck of a lot of convincing to start to whittle away and start to slowly get her to consider another, another outlook. That, and she, she doesn't feel any way about it. It, just, it is what it is. Where if I don't feel like doing something around the house or around the ministry or whatever, if I don't feel motivated to do it, a team of horses couldn't make me do it. <laughs> See? I attract people like me. Weird. 
It's a rough position to be in. Um, so that, that dichotomy, right, is, is really interesting to me. And usually somebody who is emotional and somebody who is mental find each other and they get married, <laughs> right? And life is great. Exciting. exciting. Thank you. Life becomes very exciting at that point. So we tend to, to so I read verses of scripture like, like love your enemies. And that is so, that for my whole life, that's been so hard for me to get my head around. Love your enemies. But I don't. Love people who persecute you and misuse you. But God, I don't. I don't. And I don't want to. And no matter how much I pray for them, people have misused you and abused you and minimized you and and all these things. As much as I pray for them and I pray for God to give me love for them, my working definition of love is wrong. Because what am I expecting when God says, love your enemies, what am I expecting? A feeling. When I pray for God, God, I want to obey your word. I just, in tears and longing and agony, God, I want to obey your word. And if you said to love your enemies, it's that important to you, and I'm not doing it, I'm not right with you. Yeah? If loving our enemies and loving our neighbor as ourself is that important to God that it's listed in the top two, and I can't make that happen in my own life, that is very, very disturbing to me. You understand what I'm saying? Then in my mind, I'm not right with God. So in agony, when I pray, God, please give me love for people that I don't love, and it doesn't happen, it just forces this this crisis in in my life. And I'm talking about me. Some of you may get it. Some of you may completely not get it, which is fine. But why is, see, everything I'm doing, I'm filtering through the wrong definition of love. And that definition has created an expectation in my life. And that expectation is what I believe love really is. God says, love your enemies. And so I expect to feel a change in my heart. And then we use that language, right? In your heart. Well, what is that? Your heart. It's not here. We know now that your heart is here. When the biblical idea of heart is not this, it means your mind, but it really means your, in, your inward places your innards innards that's such a yeah I, I feel like it's just like a super super redneck when i say innards for some reason does it sound like that okay i'm sorry <laughs> sounds right i don't know what are you talking about uh, <laughs> okay what were we talking about okay so but i want but innards everybody said in unison yeah no so i want but i want us to understand how important this is so if we have a wrong definition a wrong working definition of love, right? That creates an expectation, okay? Definitions create expectations. Now, when I'm struggling with a biblical principle like love your neighbor yourself or love your enemies, this is the definition I'm gonna use to know if it's working or not. Do I have a change of heart, a change of emotion towards my enemies? If I don't have a change of emotion or affection, towards my enemies, then in my mind, I'm not loving them. I'm disobeying God. I'm not right with God, and that's a problem. 
See, it's not about God's word or anything. It's all about the lenses that we work through to do that. Now, let's replace this definition of of, of, of a ethereal, abstract meaning with to give, right? Let's let's do this. Now, let's think about those same verses. See, the thing I love about Hebrew and the tactile, concrete nature of it is that it, it take for me, it takes me out of the equation. It takes my overthinking, analytical, emotional lens off the table and gives me something tactile, something to do, right? Give to your brothers as you would give to yourself. Oh, well, I can do that. You mean give to your enemies, be giving to your enemies, be giving to those who persecute you, be giving to those who use you wrongly. Oh, well, that's like super easy, right? Thank you. And that's the whole, how would that change the world's view of the kingdom and of the church? Now, this is for me as an emotional person. I want you to understand because I'm going to talk about Heather in a second. To see action for us emotionally wired people, and those of you that are out there that feel the same way, you're probably married to somebody. You might be sitting on the couch or in the living room with them right now listening to me, and y'all are looking at each other going like, yeah, he's talking about you. We, to, for us, action bypasses our, our mental stuff. Is that, is that a good way to say it, right? It, it, it bypasses our need to overthink and overprocess stuff. Oh, I don't have to think about it. I just do it. My niece is a nutritionist, and um, we had an appointment a couple weeks ago uh, so she can kind of get me squared away. And um, she, she gave me a whole list of things that you need to start eating besides what you are eating. Cool. Hasn't worked. <laughs> you know why? I'm just letting you in, insight. It hasn't worked because I'm going like, well, when do I eat it? And when? So we have another follow-up appointment in another week or so, and I'm going to tell her, okay, what I need is a plan where I don't have to think about it. All I have to do is read it and go, okay, uh, it's time for some fruit and nuts. Okay, go to the cabinet and get it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to, because I'm going to overthink it because I'm scared of doing it wrong. Okay? So understanding the concrete nature of he- the Hebrew language and the tactile language of the Bible helps an overthinker because it's not mental. It's action. It's not abstract. It's actionable. Does that make sense? Now, let's talk about Heather for a minute. In her mind, if somebody did her wrong, usually the first time, okay, fine, it's a mistake. Second or third time, it's probably intentional. If it's not intentional, then you're just careless enough that you're not considerate, right? And for a calculating person, that means that you're on my list, sorry, let me say it. For Heather, that means it's you're on her list. Not that you're on her list. Not that she's, and listen, th- this is really fascinating, and I, I love this about her, Mr. Ricky, their family, but it, this, yeah, some of, y'all, some of y'all are with me. The thing is that when, when Heather gets to that place, she's not retaliatory, right? She's not going to say anything bad about you, whatever. It's just like, you're not there. Just... In other words, you have so much mental, mental space, and for someone who is going to violate that space, sorry, that space is no longer available. 
Yeah, you just close the door. Sorry, you're just not in my world anymore. Again, not going to ever talk bad about you, not going to retaliate or, or anything like that. It's not about that. I just don't have space for that, right? So I can understand for folks like Sylvia, I'm not just going to pick on my wife, but Sylvia, Travis, you know, Mr. Ricky, this actually may be a little more of a challenge for those people who are more mentally or actionable oriented because of the way you process life. I'm not in your brain, so I don't know as well as I know my own. But this idea, it doesn't change the fact, no matter how we're wired, it doesn't change the fact of what the Word of God is and what the, the Hebrew understandings are. It's just how we approach it, right? For you approaching it this way and for me approaching it this way, we just have to understand how we feel and how we're wired and how we approach things. So this idea of, of Ahava of love is just a giving. Giving doesn't require thought. Giving doesn't require thought. Well, what should I give? Should I be giving to this person or that person? Is not a condition. Should I have a giving attitude? Do I, if I do, that's fine. God so loved the world that he gave. Did everybody in the world love God? But he still gave even though they didn't give to him. Give what to him? Their allegiance, their loyalty. Even though the world didn't give God love, they didn't love God, they didn't give him their allegiance and their loyalty, he still showed his love in that he gave. It's the, it's the direction of the giving, right? Love is not mental and love is not emotional. Love is an action. Love is a verb, to quote DC Talk or whoever it was. <laughs> so th- this, this idea it filters into the next thing we're going to talk about, or start to talk about, which is... Uh, loving kindness, which is really the point I wanted to make. I wasn't going to talk about love at all. And then, um, yeah, see, there you go. And so I want to talk about chesed, loving kindness, um, because loving kindness is actually used uh, 250-something times it's actually used more than, than love, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think it is in the, in the Tanakh, right? So chesed, I'm not even going to try to do it in Hebrew. You're welcome. Um, chesed, which is most commonly in your Bibles translated as, what does anybody know? Loving kindness. So let's play our little game from last week. Chesed means loving kindness. Well, what does loving kindness mean? Nice, nice emotions. To Kyle, loving kindness, he reads that and thinks that as nice emotions. Okay, cool. What does loving kindness mean? Come on, tell me. Being good to others? Okay. That's a thinker's definition. Okay, when people do you wrong, you still treat people the way God treated you. That's good, that's good definitions. For most people, loving kindness is not super, super helpful. Again, depending on how you're wired. For me, this is really hard because it has this word in the front. And if loving is an emotion or a state of mind and I can't get there, then therefore I can't be kind. Or it's harder for me to be genuinely kind. Let me say it like that. And for us overthinker emotional people, 
genuineness is huge, right? Authentic, being authentic. Good, bad, and in between. Loving kindness. I don't know who originally, who originally coined this term. Um, the first time I heard it was Dr. Michael Heiser. And then in his book, Unseen Realm, he has a chapter in there where he's talking about the Torah and all. And he talks about loving kindness. And instead of loving kindness, he uses this definition. Believing loyalty. Just marinate on that for a second. (laughs) Believing loyalty. Rather than loving kindness, okay, let's just... Not that, this is, not that loving kindness is wrong. We're just trying to look at other options. Believing loyalty. I think the best way to do this is to read it in some verses, and we'll do that in a second. But it has believing in there, which is a good thing, because what motivates, whether you're a, a, a feeler or a thinker, what motivates us all should be what we believe. Now, I know I... I I talk a lot about um, it's not what you believe, it's what you do. And I say things like that a lot. And I believe, and that's true. But again, those are one of those balancing acts that I'm trying to get everybody to understand. We have been so belief heavy in our tradition, and we haven't been do heavy, right? That faith versus works thing. And all I'm trying to do is overcorrect a little bit so that we come to some kind of symbiosis, some kind of balance. Man, euphoria then symbiosis. I'm on a roll today. I didn't even sleep that good last night. That's, that's right. Yeah, innards, innards and symbiosis. You never know. You're going to get the whole thing here. Um, so, but it does matter what we believe, right? It does matter what we, that's why we're all here is because we believe something. Now, I kick against the idea that belief is only mental assent. It's not only mental assent, but it is, to a degree, a convincing in your mind. It is to a degree for us, for our culture, at some point in your life, you were, you, were, you were given a series of facts. You're a sinner, and the maybe somebody led you down the Romans road, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Sin, eventually those who are in sin will not see the kingdom of life, uh, kingdom of heaven, you'll be in eternal torment, whatever. The other set of facts is that there is, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? And through him you can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And you looked at those facts and you said, okay, I believe and I'm going to give my life to Yeshua. I believe these things. So belief is ultimately important and it is a change in our mind. Now, for some people, sadly, belief is an emotion. Belief is something you feel, and you can believe it as long as you feel it. Any of my overthinkers? Right? This is a scary one. Y'all, y'all that don't live in our minds and are not wired like us, y'all, I know you've got your own issues, right? But I can believe, if I feel a certain way, I can believe something 100%. And then I cannot feel that way and not believe it. 
I don't know how to say it any other, other. somebody can help me, I don't know, facts change based on how I feel, how scary is that, that's, that's wild, isn't it, and it's not something I learned or something I was taught, I just came out this way, I don't know, I've often said, you know, during different phases of the moon or my moods or whatever, um, time of the month, because guys have them too, um, if I came home and there was a check for a million dollars in my mailbox, it would be like, okay, whatever. Conversely, if the family came home to a house that had been burned to the slab, it would be like, okay. Because it depends on where we are emotionally in the moment, which is super scary, right? Try being married to somebody like this. Pray for my wife. It's exhausting. <laughs> but I, I tell you what, there are more people like me than you realize. This room is about 80%. And most don't want to th- talk about it, number one, that's good, because it's stigmatized, right? Like, well, if you really had faith, whoa, back up there, Chico. It's not that easy, okay? It, and it's... Right, my faith isn't real, right, just because it doesn't look like yours. All right, okay, so, so, so belief is, is, is an important thing, and it's something that we both, both sides of the family, the, 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 process, the way we process, have to come to terms with this idea of no matter what it looks like to you, belief is something that is not negotiable, which is as you mature and as you grow and as you study and as the Father brings you further along, the, what belief looks like may change and may tweak a little bit, but it's still the idea that I'm committed. Belief is not an emotion. It's a commitment. Believing says I am going to X, Y, Z. And it is a covenant, right? It's, the belief is, is not only, well, you convinced me, so I guess I have to understand it your way. That's not belief. Belief is a commitment. As we're talking about emotional belief, some of you, many, many people out there, got saved at an altar call, maybe at a concert, maybe at a, 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 a church camp, maybe at a whatever, a Billy Graham crusade or whatever. But there's a good chance there's a lot of emotion involved there. And emotions can be hard. I'm not saying that pastors intentionally manipulate people's emotions. But not, not all pastors do. And not all people that got saved were manipula- manipula- uh, uh, emotionally manipulated. I'm not saying that. But here's the way Yeshua talks about belief. He says, count the cost. Now, here's what's interesting to me. I've heard that. I've heard sermons preached about that. But what I've never heard and never seen ever in all of my years of church Baptist, Pentecostal, full gospel, assembly of God, apostolic. I think that's about it. I've never seen a pastor give an altar call and someone comes up the altar to be saved and the pastor says, no, we're going to count the cost first. I've never seen any pastor deny leading anyone in the prayer of salvation, which is not even in the Bible. 
I've never seen any pastor lead anyone to salvation or deny leading anyone to salvation because they haven't counted the cost yet. Never seen it. You may have. Never. 42 years in church. Never have seen a pastor go, you want to come to Christ? That's awesome. But before you do that, let's talk about the cost. It may happen in places, and I hope it does. I've never seen it. Because, you see, to Yeshua, belief is not something up, only up here. But it's something that eventually has to be lived out here in the real world. And the question is, not do you believe. The question is, are you committed? That's the question. The question is not, do you believe? Yeah, we believe in a lot of stuff that we're not committed to. Belief is another one of those words, kind of like love. Well, I believe in stuff that I'm not committed to. I have no investment in. I don't spend time worrying about or thinking about. But I also, but my belief in God is the thing that I build my life on. You see how those we use those words again interchangeably and and really loosely, and they don't really mean anything then, right? I'll just throw in this one, this one in there for fun. Just like those of you that follow politics or the news or whatever, the word racism today means nothing. Sorry. But when everything is racist, nothing is racist. Well, if we believe in everything, we don't believe in anything. Because words just change. And the meanings change. Think about the things you say you believe. Think about the words that you use in the next couple of days. How many times do you say believe? Well, I believe she wouldn't have got pregnant if she wouldn't have. Or I believe he wouldn't have lost his job if you believe that. Are you committed to that? When you say you believe something and it's gossip, are you committed to that belief? Are you committed to the point where you could stand trial because you believe it? I believe that their marriage wouldn't have fell apart if he wouldn't have. Really? Let's go to a court. Are you willing to stand behind that belief? See, it's easy to say something about belief, but it's different to be committed. And Yeshua understood that belief is not only mental, belief is what happens after you say you believe. After you declare your belief, it's what happens after that, which proves if you really do, say, do believe what you said you did. So Yeshua said, Count before you, whoa, guys, whoa. All these people that wanted to follow him, you're the Messiah. We want to follow you. We want to follow him. He said, wait, ho. <laughs> I don't know if Jesus could whistle. I'm assuming he could. Son of God, could you not whistle? All these people thronging after him. We want to follow you. We want to follow you. And when he said, whoa, hey, hang on a second. If anybody's going to be my disciple, my Talmud, the first thing he has to do is believe in me. Nope. The first thing he has to do is love me. Nope. The first thing he has to do is count the cost. We got the, the, the roles of the roles of heaven are bursting at the seams with people that one time believed and maybe still do believe, but are they committed? Or if they didn't count the cost, were they being set up for something they didn't expect? Because again, how you believe creates an expectation. How you believe defines an expectation for you. 
And whatever you were told about the gospel or told about the kingdom or told about Yeshua or told about God has, has, creates an expectation. And man, aren't you glad that so many of us in the Torah movement, our expectations have been rocked and changed and shattered. And now we understand that we are expect different things. I'm glad my expectations have changed. I'm glad that the Ruach has changed the things that I expect from God and from his word and by, de- and by default from other people. Believing is about commitment. It's about commitment. And then loyalty is in that same vein. That's where these two words work so well together. Loyalty being ongoing commitment. Loyalty is a hard thing to find. True loyalty is a hard thing to find. And I can just say for myself, I've been loyal and I've been disloyal. I've been flippant on loyalty in different, part, different times in my life. Loyalty is so, so hard to find. It's hard to be loyal because we don't get a lot of loyalty back generally. Loyalty in family. Listen, my family is broken. Not, not my family. Don't get scared. Not my immediate family. Larger family. We have brokenness in our family. We have disloyalty in our own family. It doesn't make us different than any other family. But if you can't even have loyalty within your family, how is it to have loyalty outside of your family? So let's just go through a few, a few verses I want to read so that we can have a better sense of what chesed, loving kindness, is. Because there's two sides, as there are to all the characteristics and the personalities of God, there's two sides to this. There's how God deals with us and we deal with him. I'll call that A, 1, A, and B. And that's how, number two, or B, we deal with each other. So this, um, by the way, just let me just give you real quick the opposite. Um, Leviticus 20, verse 17 um, talks about, uh, let me find it right here real quick so I can quote it, or if somebody else pulls it up, oh here, Leviticus twenty seventeen, it says, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. You know what that word disgrace is? It's the opposite form of chesed. Same letters, opposite meaning. So what does that tell us about the definition of chesed? If the opposite is used as disgrace or shame, the opposite is what we should be looking for in chesed. I just think that's interesting. Um, so let's go to Exodus fifteen thirteen, and we'll read there. We'll just look at a couple of examples, and then we'll wrap up. Exodus fifteen thirteen. See how this expands, not changes, but expands our understanding of chesed. So this is, of course, Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses, right? And Miriam after the, uh, after the Exodus. They are singing about God and who God is. Now, 
if you're struggling with identity or you're struggling with how God feels about you or where you stand with God, this ought to revolutionize your life. Verse, uh, well, let's do verse 12. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. Verse 13, uh, verse 13. In your unfailing love, is that what you guys have? Steadfast love? Loyal love? Okay, what's that? Loving kindness, okay, right? Look at all the ways that's been translated. That word is chesed. In your chesed, your, let's use our definition, or Dr. Heiser's definition, believing loyalty. In your believing loyalty, will you lead the people that you have redeemed? In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. How does that change the meaning for you or expand the meaning for you? You know what it does for me, which is really crazy? It tells me, first of all, that God believes in me, which is revolutionary for me. It's one that we always talk about belief as we have to believe in God, which, yeah, of course. But again, that's two sides of the same coin. God called us in the first place. The only reason we have the, the capacity to believe in God is because he believed in us first and called us to believe. Right? There's a message that I taught. I think I taught it here once, maybe. I probably need to do it again. Uh, called Covered in the Dust of Your Rabbi. And the idea behind this teaching was that when I started to learn about rabbinical relationships with their disciples... A rabbi has a lot of bright, bright students that apply to be his disciples. This happens even today. Out of a, a, a class of 14, 15-year-olds, 13-year-olds, the brightest of them apply to become the disciple of a rabbi. That rabbi will only choose the ones that he believes can be like him. Why is that? Well, because every rabbi has what we call a yoke. What is their yoke? The yoke is the way they interpret and live out the Torah. Does any of this sound familiar? It's their way of interpreting and applying the Torah. Every rabbi has one. Matter of fact, I was t talking to Hanukkah a couple weeks ago, and I think it was Hanukkah, and we were talking about Yeshua's Torah. And he was giving me quote after quote after quote of conversations that he's had and references to, in Israel today, you run into somebody and you go, oh, did you hear Rabbi so-and-so's Torah on Shabbat? What does he mean? The way that rabbi breaks down, interprets, and applies the Torah. That's, it's their Torah. It's not. It's God's Torah, but you understand. It's, their, it's the way that they apply the Torah, Right? So every rabbi has this yoke, we, it's called in the Gospels, their way of applying the Torah. And the rabbi wants his yoke spread, right? He wants everybody to, to, to believe, understand, interpret, and apply the Torah the way he does because he thinks his is right, right? Because he's a good human being. 
And so he's only going to pick disciples who he believes can replicate him. So as a wise, credentialed rabbi, when a Talmud, a disciple gets chosen, what that rabbi is basically saying is, I'm choosing you because I believe you can be like me, which is huge. This is kids that have grown up in yeshiva. By the time they get to rabbinical uh, application, many of them, the best of them, have the entire Tanakh memorized, or very, very large portions of it. The Torah has been memorized since they were like 10, 5, yeah, 5, 6. They start memorizing at 5, 6, right? So this makes it all the more incredible when Yeshua is walking along the shore and he finds these fishermen who fishing is what they do. It's what their parents did. It's generational trade and they're failing at it. They didn't go to yeshiva. They might have gone like the first year and then the rabbis went like, sorry, buddy, you got to Like fishing is what you do. This Torah thing is not for you. Like go get married, have a bunch of babies. Maybe one of them will be a rabbi, but not you. So they got kicked out of rabbinic training. That's why they're fishing. And they're failing at that. And Yeshua, this rabbi, comes along the beach and he says, Lech Lecha, come follow me. You, always, you ever wonder why they dropped their nets and just like took off, leave the boats and leave the family, leave everything and just follow him? Because in their world, a rabbi believed that they could be like him. But they didn't have any training. They didn't have any knowledge. They didn't have any, yeah, they went to synagogue like everybody else and did their thing. But they worked. They were working men. They didn't stick their nose in the Torah every day, all day, the, the, you know, studying the least minutia. They were working men who weren't trained, who didn't deserve to be a Talmud of a, a famous rabbi. And this rabbi, Yeshua, from Nazareth, comes by and says, look, I know you, you fail out of rabbinic training. I know this is your generational trade for how many generations, and you're not even doing really well at that. Basically, you're an all-out failure. Nothing in life is working. But lech lecha, come follow me, because I believe you can be like me. And it's really cool for them, but you know what? It's even cooler for us. Because the reason you believe in Yeshua is because at some point he said, come follow me. Because he believes that you can be like him. God, Hashem, through Yeshua showed us great chesed when he invited us into the family. He showed us great believing loyalty. He models believing. See, we all think that in order to be in relationship with God, we have to believe first. The Bible tells us that when we were still sinners, he died for us. Why? Because when we were still out of the family, he believed in us. He had believing loyalty, chesed, toward us when we weren't even, before we even believed in him. Yeah? That the creator of the universe believes in humanity should wreck you. The fact that the Messiah, 
the Prince of Peace calls to us and says, come follow me. I believe you're one that can be like me. I believe you can spread my yoke. And we all know Yeshua didn't do away with the Torah, but he definitely had a way of interpreting it and applying it, right? He got in arguments about it all the time because that's what good rabbis do. They argue about their yokes and why one is right and one is wrong or one is better and one is not. This is just the world of Judaism in the first century. And Yeshua is calling a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of non-Jews that don't know the Torah, don't know God, don't know the history of Israel, they don't know anything. We don't know anything about this book. And he's saying, you know what? You're failing at life. But come follow me because I believe you can be like me. I believe you can take my yoke, right? My burden is easy, right? Light. I believe you can take my yoke and spread it to the nations. Is that powerful? If that doesn't make you humble and excited all at the same time, pinch yourself because something's not right. Hey. Hey. You're interrupting my flow, brother. I, I think that's probably my sign. It's about, it's about time to wrap up. Because it'll, uh, it's just going to go downhill from here. All right. Two more verses real quick and we'll wrap up. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Devarim 7, we'll read verses 6 through 9. It says, For you are a people holy to Hashem your God. For Hashem your God has chosen you out of all people in the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Do you, you, hear all, you should hear chesed in all, in all this language now. You, he chose you. You didn't choose him. He believed in you when you didn't even know he was there. You didn't even know he was a thing, and he believed in you, and he called you his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because Hashem loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. Ah. What do we say? Part of believing loyalty is believing is commitment, right? You see it here in this verse? It says that he loved, he loved you. Well, what does that mean? Great, God loves me. Does that mean he feels a puppy dog type of emotion towards me? No, he's committed to Israel. Why? Because of the oath he swore to their ancestors. Oh, so his love is manifested in commitment. Was God happy with everything that they were doing? Was he happy with where they were? Maybe not, but he was committed because he believed in them. And believing is not just what you think, it's what you're committed to. This is so good. So he goes out, and he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed them from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Verse 9, know therefore that Hashem, your God, is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love, loving kindness, believing loyalty to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, here's what's really cool. So that in verse nine, let's replace love with believing loyalty and that idea. Hey, stop. Thank you. Verse nine, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is faithful, keeping his covenant of, of believing loyalty, his covenant of believing loyalty 
to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you see how this is reciprocal? God is, is, is going to be loyal to you, to Israel, as long as they love and keep his commandments, right? It's, it's, a, it's a two-way street. It's a relationship. Verse 10, but those who hate him, he will repay, fa- uh, repay their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay. Because loyalty goes both ways. Loyalty goes both ways. All right, one more verse. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This one should hit you square between the eyeballs. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. One we know, but we're going to expand our understanding of it by reading in this alternate definition. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. I said that there's two, two parts to this. The way we deal with God, we've talked about us having believing loyalty to God. And God actually having believing loyalty to us, which again, I hope this wrecks you for the next few days and hopefully brings some healing if you need it. But there's the other part is how do we treat each other? Verse 8, Micah 6. He has shown you, O mortal, O human, what is good. And what does Hashem require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. What does that mean? What is that word there? To walk justly, to have believing loyalty, and to walk humbly with your God. To have believing loyalty, not just to God, but to each other. And this is where it gets really sticky. But in some ways, it gets so easy now. What is my responsibility to you and you and you and you? And people out there that I don't know, truck drivers that drive by here hauling logs and out of the woods on Shabbat. Man, do I wish they were taking Shabbat off? Yeah. People that drive around town, people that run it at Walmart or the store or whatever. And do I agree with their lifestyle? Do I care? Do I whatever? How am I supposed to think about them? Well, this guy comes to Yeshua and says, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the Shema. He goes, yeah, I got it. He goes, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that might be ahava, give to your neighbor as yourself. But we could also put in the family of chesed. Have believing loyalty to your neighbor as you want somebody to be believing and have loyalty towards you. What does that mean? Go ahead. People who drive slow in the left lane, they're not part of the covenant, obviously, so this doesn't apply. They're not saved, so it doesn't, we're just talking about covenantal relations. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. Some, well, that's not the point. That's not the point. That's not the point. All right. So, so think about this. Think about what you said earlier. About, think about how the world would see the church differently if this was our attitude. That it is my, because I counted the cost, or now I'm counting the cost after the fact, but now I understand that part of the cost of following Yeshua in bearing God's image, remember that's the context of everything, our first definition, the first thing that God says about humanity in the whole of humanity's existence, is that we're an image of him. 
before sin, before the fall, before whatever, before abuse, before whatever happened to you in your own life, the first thing God says about us is that you're my image. Huge. As image bearers with Yeshua, partnering with Yeshua to bear God's image to the rest of the world, what if the world knew the church as a bunch of people who had believing loyalty for humanity? Not judgment, not whatever, not not all this other stuff. Believing loyalty. Which means if you're in the camp, if you're part of our tribe, those of you in this room, those of you online, I believe in you. More importantly, God believes in you. But right now we're we're talking about interpersonal. I believe in you. I believe that you have the ability, the capacity, the desire, the drive, the intellect to be and walk into whatever God has in mind for you. I believe that for you. But I don't just believe that for you. I'm also committed, loyally committed to seeing that happen in your life. To doing whatever I can. Dad, we were talking about corn the other day. It's time to lay the corn by. For those of you, you know, laying corn by, you go in between. Some of y'all don't know what that means. Some of y'all from the north, you probably don't know what that means. But if, you know, if you know what innards are, you know what laying corn by is. When the corn gets up certain high, you, you go between the rows and you cultivate it up and get the weeds out and, and just call it laying it by. It's one thing to plant the seed and see it start to grow. Cool. But are we for each other willing to do the work of when life gets weedy to come in and help clean up? You know what I mean? To come in and help maintain. I believe you can be what God wants you to be. But I'm also committed, not just because I'm your pastor, but because I'm an image bearer of God. I'm committed to helping you maintain that relationship so that you get where you're supposed to go. And you become who you're supposed to be. Now that's easy within our family. The real challenge comes in, can we see this and can we exhibit this in greater humanity? People that are not a part of our denomination or our walk, and then people that don't even know or live in the kingdom of God whatsoever. Can we look at somebody in our vernacular that's lost, a heathen, or if you're from South Louisiana, a heathen, there's an R in there somewhere. Can we look at the the heathen people around us, the people that... You know, you know who I'm talking about. I don't know what they look like for you. I know what they look like for me. But as a part of humanity, which God says we're created in his image, see our Genesis 1 teaching, can I have believing loyalty to people that don't even believe in my God? Can I show chesed to people that don't even believe in my God? And in my system and in my way of living life, can I show chesed to people who want legal abortion? Can I show chesed to people who want to kill the Jews and anyone associated with them? Can I show chesed to people who think we're a cult and we're sacrificing animals in the back and all that stuff? Can I show believing loyalty to them? See, that doesn't take an emotion. It doesn't take a mental calculation. And it helps separate me from the judgment. I don't have to be judged. What do I have to judge? God just said, 
believe the best for them, and do whatever you can to help them get there. But God, what if they don't end up getting saved? That's not, what are you talking about? You added that part of the equation. We added that part of the equation. But what if they don't ever start coming to our church? What, what do you, I got to believe God's like, what are you talking about? I said, that's part of the cost, right? The cost is doing the work and not getting any reward. It's not about reward, but man, in, evangel, in, in evangelistic uh, traditions, we're so reward-based. It's like a multi-level marketing company. we're so reward based what if there is no reward that we can see that we know what if what if we just see humanity all as god's image but people are abortionists that's not the image of god that's not what the bible says i'm not saying i understand how it all works i'm just saying what the scripture says humanity was created in god's image there's some really, really nasty, dark parts of humanity that I don't believe reflect God's image. But you know what? God called us holy. Are you always there? But God called us. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying to wrap up. After, after I wrap up, we talk. After God calls us his image, are there parts that we don't live up to? Yeah, absolutely. But God's hope is that we would all bear his image. And you know what? It doesn't help whenever some image bearers are looking at people having a hard time bearing the image and trying to just cut them off from the body. Right? Yeah, that's not human. It's inhumane. That's a beastly thing. That's what people outside of the image do. What I'm saying is this releases you from judgment. You know what? That, part, that woman, that man that wants to argue for the ability to kill babies up until they take their first breath, while I vehemently, and I want you to hear this, I vehemently and abhorrently disagree with that point of view. As an image bearer, as a disciple of Messiah, I cannot let that view of that person define all that they are for me. So a person doesn't know what gender they are, and today there's something, and tomorrow there's something else. You know what I just realized yesterday? I know I'm going long, I'm sorry. Live stream will cut off at 12.30, so we got at least another half an hour. No, I'm joking. Uh, let's see, what was its first name? Um, the Jenner that was an Olympian? Bruce. Bruce Jenner becomes Caitlyn Jenner, wins woman of the year the first year it's a woman. He's a woman. The first year. <laughs> never had a baby, never had a period. And now, all of a sudden, he's better than all you women. <laughs> Okay, that was a little sidetrack. But even if somebody like that, that I don't, I don't understand what goes on in their head and in their mind. God said if they are a human being on this earth, they're in his image. Again, I don't understand all of that. I don't understand how that works. I don't like it. It's challenging. My responsibility, my responsibility to God and to that person is to show them chesed. Loving kindness believing loyalty it doesn't mean to hitch yourself to somebody who's going to drag you to the depths that's not what i'm saying you can be loyal from a distance and at a certain point the loyalty 
if loyalty starts to pull on you and pull you in a place where you shouldn't be, the loyalty needs to be, you need to look at what you're loyal to. But again, this goes to our need to be able to be as strong and as deep in our roots. Psalm 1, that tree, our roots as deep as they possibly can. When the winds blow, we we don't move. We may lose a leaf or two, but we don't move fundamentally. So... I hope this discussion on chesed and ahava, love, were helpful. Um, I'm not going to promise what we're doing next week because I don't know, uh, but I, uh, I appreciate you guys' interaction. We'll talk a little bit more. I know everybody's hungry. Don't move. We'll talk a little bit more uh, after we get done. So thank you guys for joining us on live stream. Love you very much, and that means committed to you. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I hope you have a great rest of the week. Let's pray. Father, I bless you, and thank you for our online family. Uh, and thank you, Father, that uh, as we continue to discuss and uh, and eat together and make kiddish together, uh, that we leave our live stream family and pray that they have a most wonderful time and that they have a, a wonderful rest of Shabbat and a, a glorious week coming up. And we love every one of them and pray your best. Um, we pray, Father, your spirit lead them and guide them and you protect them. So we thank you for our live stream audience through Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen and amen.